collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. So good morning, everyone, or by the time this goes live, you guys may know something about the elections that we don't actually know yet. So uh, welcome to the future. It's great. I'm really excited to have today with me uh, my guest, Raphael Freeman. How are you doing, Raphael? All things considered, uh, I'm doing pretty well. It's really good to have you here. And I invited you on the show today to really just talk a little bit about the elections in no particular order, but I know that you have a background in political science and you and I always have like really great conversations about where the world is when the world is there. So I'm excited to kind of just be with you and uh, sit with the questions that I think most of us are sitting in with your added thinking and nuance that is kind of what makes you uniquely you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My first question is always tell us a story about yourself that gives the listeners a little bit more of a um, insight into who you are and maybe a little bit more kind of the way I know you. So, you know, the story that pops to mind is I was about 14 years old and I was walking, you know, it was late at night, probably two o'clock in the morning. I was walking with a friend, Padre, and there was a black uh, mercury that pulled up to us and cut us off. And for whatever reason, this is part of how my personality works. I didn't react very strongly. I just walked around the car. Like he, the guy cut us off. I walked around, Padre followed me and we continued talking. Uh, about three people uh, hopped out of the car and it was clear that their intention was bad. I ran in one direction Padre ran in a different direction. And, um, you know, we locked eyes and understood that you just gotta, you have to commit to that path. I'll commit to, to this path and, you know, we'll meet up sometime. I ran into a dark, like behind people's houses, there were stairwells and I, I sort of hid in a stairwell. I saw the car pass maybe two times uh, looking for us. I was able to make my way to the, the playground that was, it was essentially, it was the beginning of our neighborhood. It was, uh, I knew that I'd be safe once I got to the playground. And as soon as we got to the playground, the car pulled up again. I told Paco to run across the field, uh, which he did. And he started making his way home 
I had a different analysis that I thought could get me there uh, more quickly. And so I ran a different way, but I was outsmarted by our menacing uh, group of midnight marauders. They, um, two of them had gotten out of the car and uh, one of them was still in the car. So they cut me off. And as I doubled back, there was a guy who was waiting there with a gun. He took the money that I had, took my wallet. He took the watch that my father had given to me before he died. And then afterward, when I, I met up with my friend again, you know, I sort of told him what happened in this relatively dispassionate way. I just relayed the facts. And as I'm thinking, that story in so many ways is, it sort of captures the essence of who I am. Certainly the overthinker part is there, uh, but I'm never swayed greatly by the emotional aspect of what's happening in the moment. I try to keep a clear head and I also accept what befalls me, try to make sense and just try to develop a strategy for whatever is happening. There's never panic. There's always what can, what's the best strategy for this moment. And in that way, I think it sort of sums up my personality. I said, thank you. That experience certainly provides a vivid image, both of kind of who you are and some of the things that you've had to face. And so I'm wondering how are, what's the clear headedness? Like, how are you making meaning from what's happening right now around the elections and the count and the vote and where our country is right now. So in some ways, I think that that spirit is still with me. I have felt the fear of, you know, everything that has been happening since, since March. I have been present to, you know, the feeling of entering into a, um, you know, a place that this country has never really gone before, especially the, the rhetoric around the idea that there might not be a peaceful transfer of power. And I feel like I'm really clear-eyed about how to think through strategically, you know, listening to my gut, but also preparing from a strategy standpoint to whatever we're going to encounter in the next coming days or coming weeks or, or coming months. But I also try to keep some perspective. And for me, that perspective is, uh, it's not just my gut. It's looking at what has happened throughout the history of the United States and trying to keep enough perspective that, you know, even for this golden moment, I say golden moment, even for this particular moment, I was thinking golden dawn in, in Greece. And I think Golden Dawn, that that was a tough moment for the Greeks, but they still held on to their country. I think Greece is still in a, I think it was a, a scary, um, you know, time in government for a lot of people who were not part of that sort of right extremist movement. But Greece didn't fall apart and I, I don't think we will either. 
And so what's the Golden Dawn for those of us who may not know? What's the term that we use here? Um, Proud Boys? Mm -hmm. it, it was a very well-organized right extremist movement that uh, was able to, to run the government for a couple cycles. And I think for some parts of Europe that that even signaled that right extremism might sweep Europe. They won in, in a few different countries groups, white nationalist groups. But things didn't fall apart. And, you know, the ebb and flow of what happens on the left and the right still continued. And so it feels like that moment a little bit here, especially as the Trump campaign is coming to an end, it feels like nationalism and right extremism um, could take us over. But the institutions, I think, are strong enough and I think there are enough Americans who don't want that. That voice, um, it can't win. What do you think about language co-optation? Because like, that's the part that I find has been trickiest. Is this thing, so the most blatant part of it right now, right? Is that while um, there's, a place to, like, while they're pointing the fingers and claiming fraud, right? Like, I texted someone today saying, who posted something on Facebook that was just saying, like, there was a fake post, right, about how many dead people were in, written up in Michigan or what have you, right? Um, we're trying to vote, like, that there were all these ballots, fake ballots of dead people nice. in Michigan. And then I called them on it and they removed the post. And I said to them, like, while you are claiming fraud, my vote hasn't been counted yet. So your calls to stop the vote is in fact disenfranchising literally me. Because right. Philly is still counting, as you know, it's uh, mail-in ballots, right? Of which I have one of the people who did an absentee ballot. There's this thing that's happening is that while they're pointing the finger at someone else, they're actually committing the crime they're right. claiming to point their fingers at at someone else. So while Trump is attempting to create fraud, he's pointing the finger accusing others of creating fraud. And that's just, it's been kind of a consistent thing in the past four years. Like we right. see it happen for racism. We have see it happen this finger pointing to take attention away from what they're doing and in the finger pointing actually causing the action that they're claiming others to do. So what are your thoughts about that? It's one of these places where I have to rest my faith in one, the institutions, and two, to hope that I mean, we're still a rule of law place so far. And I, I have a tremendous amount of faith in the idea of being the type of country that respects the rule of law. And the reason that that's important, I think, with, with respect to your question is this. You know, if it comes down to the courts, 
that I think most judges, I think most attorneys understand that the country that they want to live in is a country, I mean, you know, these are people who are dedicated to the law, uh, dedicated their lives, so it's judges. I think that most judges understand that they don't want to live in a dictatorship. And so the, the amount of faith that I have in the institutions that the judges will do the right thing, they'll have to live in this country too. I think I have a tremendous amount of faith, even in the, you know, for as much as Amy Coney Barrett's, you know, appointment was seen as a disappointment for so many people who were not in Trump's base or for so many people who were left of center. I still have, you know, a tremendous amount of confidence that she will still be a judge. She was a judge before. I imagine there are certainly going to be some decisions that we won't like. Other than Clarence Thomas, the rest of, of the judges uh, it still seem like they are committed to living in the kind of country that, that we all want to live in, even when they have decisions that go against what Donald Trump would have wanted. The fraud strategy from the Trump campaign and administration, it makes sense because he's corrupt, you know, anyway. But um, I don't think that that strategy will prevail in a way that he gets to, to steal it. And then there's, I also think we have a backup. I know I'm talking a lot. I think we have a backup system. And those are the people who were, all those, you know, generals and admirals and high-ranking officials who are in the military, I think they also want to live in the country that we live in and not some version of Iraq or Uganda. And I, I have zero confidence in Donald Trump's ability to actually use fraud to perpetuate you know, his, his time in office. I read an article recently that was saying kind of what you were saying, that there is a history, as quiet as it's kept, of Republicans and conservatives being disappointed by Supreme Court justices. So there's a history of Republicans and conservatives being disappointed with Supreme Court justices because they tend to legislate less conservatively than the conservatives want um, inside of their commitment of upholding the Constitution. It's kind of refreshing to hear you have trust of judges to be judges. Yeah, that's just really refreshing to hear. Yeah, you know, I try to understand the two of the people that are probably most disappointed in, in Mitch McConnell. And, you know, to a lesser degree, Lindsey Graham and how much they have fawned at the feet of, of Donald Trump. But they also have a constituency, a, a post a Tea Party constituency, and they're trying to stay in power. And what I love about the judiciary in general is that you know, once they're appointed, they don't have to answer to the public in that way. 
the answer really to the constitution and to the nation, but not to a constituency. And they're not worried about being reelected. And so they don't have to be swayed in that way. Uh, and we can't fire them. They're insulated from all the political swaying and the political forces that would normally sway a legislator. And in that way, I feel I still feel really good about, again, I don't know what's happening with Clarence Thomas. That gives me some hope. So what are your predictions on where we're going from here? Just count-wise. Count-wise? Yeah. Um, Joe Biden is close enough to the electoral count that he needs. And I, I think he'll win. I'm not so sure that Donald Trump even really wants to, uh, I think it'll be, and Joe Biden said as much, but I, actually I happen to agree. I think if he tries to make a court play, it's going to go worse for him uh, than he imagines. Why is that? Why do you think it's gonna go worse? Why do I think it's gonna go worse? If we just look at the relationship uh, that Donald Trump had with the Postmaster General and the shenanigans that have happened, I don't think that they'll be able to get in front of the courts without having opposing attorneys start to look at what were clearly fraud practices happening on the Republican side. And if they can tie any of that whatsoever to the campaign or people who are closely connected to the campaign, I think there could be criminal charges. It doesn't seem, one, I don't think it's a strategy that he can win, but also I think it opens him up to a type of, of litigation and types of charges that just won't be, to me, it doesn't seem like a smart move. All things considered, you know, I expect something to be contested. Uh, I can't imagine a repeat of, of 2000, for example. I don't, I don't think it'll get that bad. I, I certainly hope not, but I also, I think it, it puts Donald Trump in danger as well. So you're saying he having as corrupt a legacy as he has would make it extremely dangerous for him to really go at the courts in a strong way. The mailing ballot, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to discount the fact that he's also a raging narcissist who his entire ego is. Uh, so, so I'll at least say that sometimes Donald Trump's ego and his willingness to disregard the rules entirely and be short-sighted and not play the long game, that's a thing that he's done as well. We certainly know him to be that, that kind of character. So I, I'm not saying that his narcissism won't, won't take over and uh, have his ego do all the talking. But in terms of having a team of lawyers, I'm not sure if um, the Biden team, they, they have a team of, of lawyers as well. Uh, I'm not afraid of that. Let's talk a little bit about, so let's just envision for a second that we're past this excruciating wait and we're January 1st, and it's the beginning of a Biden presidency. Since you know we're passionate about systems, like what do you think is the impact of Trump's presidency on our systems at this point? 
Like what's the legacy in terms of the shift? Because this is definitely not the same country we had four years ago, right? So what is the legacy that Biden's going to have to be with? I'm really interested in this question. You're right. The the country that we have now is certainly not the country that we had uh, four years ago or even one year ago. What felt like the beginning of a movement after the death of George Floyd, I think some of that potential energy is still, um, I think it's made its way in into our legislation and into our political body. I don't really believe that it'll look the way so many people hope it will. But, you know, even the picking of Kamala Harris as, as a vice president, I think is a testament to the idea or to the, to the notion that some of that energy uh, was captured. And I think the two of them together, I would not have said this had it not been for the uprisings, you know, during the summer and late spring, But I think the willingness for mainstream politicians to look at systemic racism, I think that political will is there in a way that that political will did not exist before. And so that's encouraging. The political will to look at institutions in ways that we would not have done before, I feel really good about that. Especially under a Biden presidency, whereas Donald Trump just, you know, three months ago or two months ago, was trying to outlaw the idea of of looking um, at systemic racism. And part of that had to do with the very specific, you know, Robin D'Angelo and uh, Ibram Kendi sort of brand of looking at at anti-racism. And I understand some of the problems that the people on the right have with that. But if there's anyone that I think a Biden, you know, uh, administration could do that is different in this particular moment is the political will to look at what are these systems actually doing. So I'm intrigued by this concept of Kamala Harris being his running mate to you as signaling a bigger commitment to looking at systems and how racism is embodied in our systems because she has such a controversial track record. Sure. Tell me a little bit more about that. So for, for so many people, uh, I mean, controversial, but I mean, not really, right? Not outside of what politicians do. Uh, I think for as much as we love is in quotes here, for as much as we love the Bill Clintons and the Hillary Clintons and the Joe Bidens um, of, of the world, I think post Willie Horton, right? So there was a, a man in, I, I wanna say it was 1988, he became important, I think that election, but there was a man who escaped prison. He didn't, I'm sorry, he didn't escape prison, he was furloughed. This black man, he was furloughed. Uh, and during his furlough, he raped and killed some people. And Willie Horton became one, the dog whistle, but he also, you know, the dog whistle for being tough on crime and the sort of racial politics of that. But it was also this moment where the Democrats felt like they needed to match the Republicans in terms of what it meant to be tough on crime. And so by the time we get Bill Clinton's 
And you know, by the time Hillary Clinton is is in office, it's when we start to get this this language about super predators. It's when Democrats really start looking more like Republicans in how they approach the harshness of the criminal justice system. And so that's one thing. The other thing that happened with Bill Clinton is, uh, you know, as he starts to do deregulate and cozy up to to Wall Street in a way that Democrats hadn't done before. We start to see that the, the parties look so much more alike now than they did, let's say, during the, the Jimmy Carter era. And here's why I think this is important. So yes, we can look at Kamala Harris's track record. And if the context is, is a post-George Floyd awakened left context, she seems like a district attorney who, who was unnecessarily harsh. But that, that's who our politicians have been since at least Bill Clinton. That's who they are. And so in that way, I don't, I don't think she's different. The thing that I, I am interested in watching her do is she seems like she, she's more influenceable to a, a left base that has moved further left than some other potential picks that, that I think Joe Biden would have had. Um, so I don't think that she is that far left, but I think she could be pushed further left than she is. So one of the things that I've heard, I heard someone say to me that they believed that having her as a VP was just a backdoor to have a woman in power because they believed that Joe Biden was going to stay for long anyway. What do you think about that? That feels right. We all have questions. When I say we all, I don't imagine that there's anybody who hasn't had a question about Joe Biden's, um, you know, mental state as to whether, you know, I, I'm certainly in no position to say that he, he's not fully competent, but, you know, we've, we've all heard the, the speeches and we've cringed a little bit and Joe Biden couldn't get his words out. I think lots of people understand that she's probably going to have an outsized role in the administration compared to some other vice president. I think that that feels right to me as well. Certainly we, we missed this opportunity with Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump. There were some campaign issues there, but how do you see the issue with Kamala Harris and having a woman sort of behind the scenes? Well, I don't know. I think the backdoor theory, to me, uh, it feels a little chauvinistic to me. Like it feels kind of like men being scared of women being in charge and making peace with men, women being in charge by making up stories. And the person who told me that is a man and a white man. It kind of feels a little chauvinistic to me, like maybe there's something about like, oh no, she can't just be doing her work. Like she's not gonna just have to do a vice president job, but she's gonna have to do the vice president and the president job. Like there's something funky there. Right. That as a woman just irks me a little. And I think one of the reasons, you know, I could be with the fact that maybe Biden is a stutterer and then as a stutterer, you know, He's got a hard time getting his words out. I'm not a stutterer and I often have a hard time getting my words out. So 
I'm okay with that answer. Like, I think not everybody's a public speaker, not everybody's an orator. And I think the reason why I can trust him, um, I don't, I mean, I don't trust him to do healthcare for all. Right? Right. I wish I could trust him to do that. I wish I could trust him to be anti-fracking. And at this point, after two debates, I can't trust that either. But I do trust him to create a team of competent people around him, right? And I don't think that a president's job or a vice president's job, for that matter, is a solo job. Um, I think what we've seen for the past year is a president who's made it a solo job and has just like fired people over and over and over again. Certainly enriched the publication industry with all the people who have left the administration and published books, right? I think I trust Biden to create a team around him. I don't know that that means that Kamala Harris is going to have two jobs instead of one. Oh, Lord, I hope not. If that's the first, if the first woman in charge gets to have two jobs instead of one, we're like <laughs> repeating the problem all over again. Right. So, so like I the hear- maximum case of chauvinism, right? We'll let you be president as long as you can do two jobs. Like, you know, being president and being a woman isn't enough. You have to be vice president and president at the same time. I hope we don't do that to her or any other woman for that matter. You're right. I I hope we we don't do that either. You know, our electorate is so fickle in ways that... uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was, I was a really big Plato fan for a really long time, and I liked Plato's idea that, of the philosopher king. The idea that leadership should be, they should know. They should be extremely competent. And I love the idea of having smart, competent leaders. Like, that would be great. If I look at what happened between Al Gore and George W. Bush, which is my favorite debate, by the way, I love this debate. It's one of these moments where you get to see machismo and just, uh, what's the word that I want? Uh, Charisma and confidence overwhelm competence and intelligence. I'm not saying George W. Bush is, is unintelligent. But he was over to overcome, I think, a level of competence in Al Gore with his vibrato, with his charisma. And the reason that I like that moment so much is because, you know, as someone who would love to believe in competence is, you know, the thing, I need reminders that the people are going to pick people that make them feel good. And those won't always be the best choice in terms of, you know, competence. Uh, I don't think that there was a better candidate than Elizabeth Warren. I don't. I think she would have been amazing. But if Al Gore and George W. Bush taught me anything, it's that Hillary Clinton losing to... Donald Trump makes a kind of sense. And Joe Biden being, you know, the pick uh, over Bernie Sanders still makes a kind of sense. It's not the sense that I want. 
but I get why it happened. Well, I want to say something to that. Like, yeah. I think it's the chauvinism. It's not so much the chauvinism in of itself. And it's the same thing for Trump. It's that authentically they are chauvinists. And so there's an authenticity that comes through with the chauvinism mm -hmm. that becomes likable. Because every other politician wow. is polishing their freaking words. Wow, yeah. It's the honesty of Donald Trump that, you know, that the white folk who vote for him adore because they're tired of the fakeness of politics. I can't really disagree with them on that. Right? Yeah. It's the authenticity because the chauvinism yeah. has authenticity behind it. And then there's the fantasy, you know, of, of all the poor men who feel like they just want to be overtly chauvinist and not have to worry about it, you know? So you're blowing my mind here because I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even with Al Gore and, you know, all of them, they, they're being their authentic chauvinist selves. And that just shines through in this authentic way that, uh, you know, the, the Al Gores of the world who are doing more posturing. I think the thing is that we underestimate how much the human mind can detect fakeness. Right. So, so I've watched this. There's some like kind of key interesting moments in my life where I was hiding something. What happens when someone hides something is that the other person makes up a story about what they're hiding. Mm -hmm. Because you don't know what they're hiding by the nature of them hiding it. Right. But when there's authenticity there, it's like, you know, it's, it is authentic. And so you're both on the same page. You're actually communicating. But when someone's hiding, the other person's like, okay, they're hiding. I don't know what they're hiding. Right. This is what I think they're hiding. And so then people make up stories about what they're hiding. But the one thing they're certain about is that they're hiding something and what they're hiding, they don't trust. Right. And the other guy is just shining through. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's really interesting. So to your point about the chauvinism, then I'm swayed by that argument. I mean, so obviously her, her job is going to be big anyway, because the vice president is not there to, to just look like a presidential stand-in uh, or to look pretty or to look like, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of waiting in the wings. They do have a tremendous amount of work. I think you're right. I think she'll be mostly busy doing her work. So, I mean, obviously Joe Biden is gonna surround himself with a competent team. Yes to all of that, I agree. So when you said that you think she will be bendable, I don't know if you said bendable, that's, that's the word I remember, but that she will move, right? Like she's not gonna be the progressive that Warren would have been, that Bernie would have been, right? But that you think she'll move. Right. Say more about I think her age has a little bit to do with why I believe that. I think the ideas that this Ibram Kendi, you know, Robin D'Angelo brand of anti-racism, um, personally, I, I prefer George Yancey, but 
but, but this brand of anti-racism sort of started coming to life. The ideas that gave birth to it started coming to life, you know, I guess in the sixties and, you know, for someone who is a generation Xer uh, as she is, I think those ideas are already more familiar to us. I think we already have a level of, of currency with that language that baby boomers don't. And, and the reason that I, I think that she is probably uh, more persuadable in that way is because the ideas aren't gonna be as far to her as they would for a baby boomer. And I think she sees the need for it too. And I, I think she might also be eager to redeem that track record that you were talking about earlier. And in those ways, I think she might be more open. So the being more open though is always contingent upon the pr pressure that's put on from the outside, right? So can you talk a little bit about how you see that? And that's like, you know, how do we leverage our collective power to shift? I'm right of center, but I am really, really, really amazed at the level of organizing that has been happening. So if you look at what's happened over the last year, I think a lot of people are, are seeing these organizations you know, in the streets and just assume that people are um, just spontaneously taken to the streets and they don't see the organizing power that's been happening for years. Uh, people have been organizing and sort of making sustainable movements uh, for years now. And so what we got to see this year wasn't spontaneous. It didn't happen uh, in a vacuum. They have been organizing. Even some of the brilliance around, um, I forget the name of the organization, but the organization that helped, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez? Yeah. Uh, that helped her in her campaign. That was like some really brilliant organizing and they, they helped a, a few other people um, as well come to the, the legislature. So, when we look at the level uh, of organization that we've seen on the left and the fact that we have people like AOC and Ilhan Omar in, uh, in office now for that group, I think they would be remiss to not continue to put pressure on a, you know, a democratic base that is skewing younger and skewing to the left they would be crazy not to do that. And I think Kamala Harris, as a Generation Xer, and as a woman of color, um, and as someone who understands the issues, I think she would be more open to that type of pressure. And I think that my guess is that those types of organizations will continue to keep that pressure on. And I think they'd be crazy not to. So my take, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go into yeah. a second and like what my take around the election and what we're seeing is, my take is that 
there's this gap, this gash, this wound that made the Trump presidency possible between the white poor. I mean, in some ways it could be in some ways the white middle class, the white poor, white middle class and liberal and progressive movements. In that, I don't think that the vision, when we talk about a world that works for everyone, I don't think the white poor, and in particular, I don't think white men see themselves in that vision. And so while we're preaching inclusion, what they hear is revenge. Sure. And I think there's just like a granular lack of relationship over the years, right? Because, and I, I can totally take responsibility that I'm, I'm one of those people, right? I'm one of those people that walks into a, a lunchroom or a conversation and like as soon as I start hearing the white male privilege, I can shut down, right? As opposed to engaging, as opposed to being willing to um, have an experience or revision the vision or like review, like what is it that's possible for all of us? And what is your vision for how this can go? I think we gave up too quickly the idea that white men could be tended to, um, not tended to as in a giving in, but like, what is the unity? Like, wh how is it that we tend to everyone's need? If it's a world that works for everyone, then, you know, how do they get their needs tended to and give up privilege at the same time? Right? Like, how does that happen? Yeah. Um, and so I think the next four years, for those of us who are reconciliation workers and, you know, consensus building and I think what came up in the past four years is ugly, but what would come up in four years from now would be uglier. And so I think these four years are some really critical years in which those of us who are building collective power have to do the granular work of building our communities and weaving, breaking the bubbles down and weaving connections among bubbles. And I, and I think the institutional work is only a part of that. There's a lot more of it to be done in private than publicly. That's my take. I'm there with you 100%. I think the next, so obviously we have these people who feel disenfranchised and, and it turns out they're actually doing worse. They're doing worse in terms of mental health. They're doing worse in, in terms of health, like real health outcomes even black people who, if we control for the same level of income, that poor whites who don't have education have some of the highest suicide rates and some of the worst health outcomes of anybody in the country. And that's interesting. There's a book by a guy, uh, Nobel laureate, his name is uh, Angus Deaton. And the book is called uh, Deaths of Despair. And he really talks about how poorly they're doing. They're not doing well. Uh, and they know that they're not doing well. And I think, you know, to your earlier point, uh, the sort of democratic elite who thinks that they are making a country for everyone has sort of systematically excluded at least their values. But, you know, I think they've also been excluded. Now, some of this is really interesting because these are people who also make choices 
they make environmental choices and they make political choices that, that hurt them uh, in the long run. And I don't just mean like, how do we understand preferences? I mean like higher rates of cancer, they're destroyed, um, you know, ecosystem in those places. There are some really destructive outcomes that come because of the, the political decisions that those poor whites have made. But let me take a, a step back at, at the country as a whole, because we've decided to form a country with otherness at the very core of it. It's like, how do you start a project where you have an entire population of other that you think will never be included? As if this otherness could just hang out ad infinitum and then you form a country that like you literally cannot do that. And now we're in a place where the, the othering has happened, but it, it, you know, it's spreading. And if you look at whatever these poor whites are facing, this very notion of, of having part of the country excluded, of having part of the country not have access to power, is at the foundation of the country. It's like, that's how you built this thing. In my opinion, yes, it's going to get worse. That yes, they'll feel more disenfranchised. Um, and then they kept going with it. Like by the time the FHA happened, you know, not to become like a you know sway, but not to dive too much in the, into the history. But by the time the FHA happened, and then they literally started building suburbs for white people to get away from the cities. By the time you have that level of othering and just disintegration that is at the core of how we want to build a country. And now it seems like, oh, I got excluded. Like, yeah, here's, here's an idea. Why don't you build a model of integration of working? If you want a united country, we're going to have to systematically make institutions that allow for it. You have 100, 200 years of building institutions that their sole goal is to keep people apart. And they thought that it would be confined to the Blacks, right? It's fine as long as it's the Blacks. But actually, now the entire country is in these cycles of one group being included and one group being excluded. This party, that party. That's the entire cycle now. Can we escape it? Yeah, of course we can escape it. Build institutions that directly integrate the citizenry or we're gonna stay in the cycle, if not worse. I love what you're saying and I just wanna replace the word integrate with connect. I'm for it. Cause I think like when we think about integration, we think about what we did in the seventies and it was just face value and it wasn't authentic and genuine. I think what, what I hear you saying that I love is creating institutions that are systematically having us connect. Right. right? are systematic, like institutions that do bridge building. Yes. Like having bridge building being the backbone of the institution instead of separation, systematic, legal, systematic, and consistent separation. That's right. Because that's what we've had. Only thing that'll get, to get us there, but you know, again, like I said, like everyone was fine when it was just the back, the blacks being excluded. But now we, we see that this problem of othering 
has spread. It's and it, there was no way that it couldn't have. You can't build an institution with difference at the middle and then think that that's sustainable. Like it doesn't. And then have it become a perfect, a more perfect union. Right. Right. <laughs> and then expect that on the other side, you're going to have a more perfect union. Right. Right. If the seed is keep people separate and disempowered, the fruit is not going to be a more perfect union. I love this because it's highlighting basically that the theme of the next four years has to be connecting. Or we're all in trouble. Like healing and connecting at all these levels, right? The private, the public, the institutions, the, I would say the nonprofits, right? It's like, it's breaking down barriers and breaking down silos and actually working on connecting across differences. And that if we don't do that, this beast that has risen its ugly head will continue to rise, I would say, even because the frustration of them not getting elected is going to be really palpable. Right. I used to have a hope that, you know, there are some, uh, you know, organizations that are out there to repairing that tear in the middle that they're trying to have conversations. I think about like Braver Angels. I think about, you know, Heterodox Academy, Heterodox Americana. There, there are, you know, uh, Republicans, uh, the Lincoln group, Lincoln Republicans, I, I forget what they call themselves. But there are organizations that are dedicated to repairing that rift. And, you know, what occurred to me recently is that all of those organizations are also not looking at the vested interest that the Russians have. Because the Russians have a vested interest in wealth. And, and they're playing on Facebook. They're playing on Instagram. They are part of this divisiveness. The Chinese government has a vested interest in wealth. And just seeing no one wants the United States to come apart completely. But if the United States becomes so hard to rule, so hard to govern, if it is in fact a house divided against itself, that works for you know our biggest competitors in the international community. It works for Russia, it works for China. Um, and I think if we don't understand uh, at least what the outside influences are doing as well, and then we think that we could just elect the person and not build these bridges the way you were talking about. If we don't build the bridges, I think the stakes are way higher than most Americans think. And yeah, it, it's going to be disenfranchised people who are really mad. Thank you for being with us today. Any last thoughts? Uh, well, I, I don't have to say go vote anymore. So uh, <laughs> I think we all have to be uh, sort of have a presence of mind about is the thing that you said earlier I think it's easy enough for, for people who are coming into power or coming into a position of, of just more privilege than they'd had before. You know, there, there's a tendency, I think, to say, oh, boo-hoo the people who are letting go of some privilege, um, white men, right? Uh, and to, to look at their conditions as not being worthy of address. And I, I don't think, you know, if we look back at this othering thing, I don't think that we can continue to build any sort of viable institution 
as long as we accept the othering of a group, even if that group is white men. And so if we don't have an inclusive, if we don't have a holistic model for how to get everybody on this boat, then this boat is going to sink. Um, and so they, they got to be included as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast, Heterodox Americana, and how do people reach you? So, yeah, I mean, Heterodox uh, Americana, we are um, dedicated to having conversations um, with people with disparate ideas about sort of uh, closing that gap or addressing that rift uh, in the middle and, and doing so in a very, um, you know, you know, nuanced, but sincere and honest, open sort of way. I think we're on all the platforms as heterodox, H-E-T-E-R-O-D-O-X, Americana. Um, that's Facebook, that's, uh, that's Instagram, it's Twitter. And yeah, we love to have people join the conversation and shoot ideas, tell us how, how wrong we are, tell us how great we are, uh, just so that we can keep the conversation going and try to move toward a, a more inclusive United States. And how do people reach you? Um, yeah, so I, you can email us um, at post at heterodoxamericana.com. Probably the easiest way is to shoot a message via Instagram, uh, the Heterodox Americana Instagram. Always there. Thank you for being with us, Raphael. And thank you for uh, helping us have a more hopeful outlook on uh, all the chaos that's happening these days. I'm so glad that I was here to have this conversation. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Rita. Wonderful. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic. <laughs>